This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. Welcome to Little Gold Men, an award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the Hollywood editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here as always with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hi, Mike. Hey, Katie. And Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hi. Hello. This week, we're having a bit of a crossover episode with the fantastic Hollywood history podcast, You Must Remember This, which is also part of the Panoply Network. Host Karina Longworth will join us to talk about super producer David O. Selznick and his campaign to win Gone with the Wind, a Best Picture Oscar. From there, we'll pick some films with the potential to surprise us this year's Oscar season. And then we'll talk about the bane of many people's Oscar seasons, category fraud. What is it? Is it a dirty trick or just how the game is played? Finally, we'll go big before we go home and predict who we think will win the Best Supporting Actor Oscar this year. So we'd like to welcome our guest, Karina Longworth, who is the host of the podcast, You Must Remember This, which, uh, Karina, in your words, is about the secret and or forgotten history of Hollywood's first century. Karina, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've wanted to have you on Little Gold Men since the show began, but your episode this week felt like a really good entry point because it's focusing on one of the first big movies that really swept the Oscars, or at least one of the ones that we really remember today, Gone with the Wind. It's part of your ongoing series about MGM, but I'm curious about why this story about David O. Selznick grabbed you, because I think in the inspiration, you took it from a suggestion from one of your listeners, but they wanted to hear about Jennifer Jones, but you got so interested in David O. Selznick that you felt like you really had to go back to talking about this guy. So why is this guy so fascinating? Right. Well, this whole season of stories set within and around MGM have come from listener suggestions. And so in this case, the listener asked for a story about the love triangle between David O. Selznick, Robert Walker, who was an actor, and his wife, whose name was Phyllis Walker. But when David O. Selznick signed her to a contract, he renamed her Jennifer Jones. Mm. And that's a fascinating story, but as I was trying to sort of find out more information about those three people, I just realized that there was so much to say about David O. Selznick and that he had such a long, fascinating history that involved MGM, partially because he was married to Louis B. Mayer's daughter, Irene. And it was Irene Mayer Selznick who he ended up having to leave when his affair with Jennifer Jones became very serious. Yeah, and what we learn in this episode is that he's not like this golden child, like nepotism. Uh, you know, he didn't get these great jobs at MGM because his father-in-law worked there. It was kind of the opposite. Like, he was the black sheep in a way who then went off and started his own company and was kind of an indie producer before that really existed to make Gone with the Wind happen. 
by the time he started um, his independent production company, he had already, first of all, tried and failed to start an independent production company. And actually, Louis B. Mayer had blocked him from doing so. Um, the studio heads, heads of studios like MGM and Paramount and Universal, they didn't want anybody to get into the independent producing game because they, it would sort of wreck this monopoly that the major studios had. And so Mayer, like, actively blocked his son-in-law from trying to do this years before. And then David O. Selznick went to work at MGM under Louis B. Mayer after Irving Thalberg had a heart attack in 1932 and kind of got sidelined. And Selznick was so successful there that, you know, everybody wanted him to stick around, but he was still determined to start his own independent production company. And he really put everything on the line to do it. I mean, he he lit, he and his, his wife, his first wife and his, later his second wife, they lived in debt their entire lives mm. because he just put everything into these movies. Something that was really interesting that I, uh, a detail on the podcast was that, or in this episode rather, was this idea that Selznick was trying to produce a, f- a smaller amount of films but at a greater quality. Was that really rare to the time? I mean, because was it, was it mostly these bigger studios just churning out movie after movie after movie? It was certainly in direct opposition to what MGM was doing. You know, a studio like MGM was releasing 50 movies a year. And Selznick released, I think it was nine movies in six years. Wow. So it's, you know, quite quite a lesser production rate. And also he's doing it with a, a smaller staff. But the thing that's really fascinating to me about Selznick is that, like, because there's so few movies, as head of the studio, he ends up basically being the auteur on all of them. And you know, definitely Gone with the Wind is, is an example of this, where it's like they go through two different directors, and it's the person who has the consistent vision is David O. Selznick. Yeah, in the podcast, you talk about what a huge toll it took on him. Like, he, I think he was writing in his diary about how nothing would be worth it for what he had to go through to make it. I'm curious if that was part of the narrative around when Gone with the Wind was going through its Oscar campaign. Like, was it, let's reward this visionary master studio exec who made this movie? Like, were people aware of how much of his kind of blood, sweat, and tears went into this? Yeah, I mean, I think that it actually it was kind of a lot like Titanic and Avatar. Mm-hmm. I thought about that. The, there are these, these movies that have been in, were in production for a really long time. Everybody knew that the costs were spiraling out of control. And in some sense, Hollywood was waiting in all of these cases for the, like, the single man whose vision was running it to just fail, to fall on their face. <laughs> and in all of those cases, they ended up being historically profitable films. And so, you know, I think that when the Oscars came around, it, it was just sort of a no-brainer. Karina, I'm curious about, this is Mike, I'm curious about what the Oscars meant at that time, because it was only about 15, 16 years old, and now it's this kind of huge, first of all, there's so much heritage, we've all just kind of inherited it and can look back on a long history, and secondly, there's so much money attached to it. But how much of a vindication was an Oscar or a bunch of Oscars for somebody like David O. Selznick at that time, and, and, and what kind of campaigning did happen? Well... Going back to the very beginning of the Oscars, they had been started in part by men like Louis B. Mayer in order to make the the artists that he employed feel like they were valued, right. um, to make movie stars and directors and stuff like feel good about themselves so that they would work harder, so that they would continue these punishing schedules. <laughs> and so by the time by the time it's 1940, which is when he was awarded for Gone with the Wind and when Gone with the Wind won in all the major categories, you know, there's no television broadcast yet. It's not something that is the giant, months-long-consuming media event that it is today. 
but it was considered really important within the industry in the sense that, you know, back then the ind- Hollywood was more, had more of a small town feel. Everybody knew each other and it had, I mean, you could argue it's the same today, I guess, but it had sort of this high school social stratification type of thing. And, you know, the success of Gone with the Wind and then followed the next year, Selznick won the Best Picture Oscar two years in a row, the second year for the Alfred Hitchcock film Rebecca. Nobody had ever won two Best Picture Oscars two years in a row. Um, so this kind of makes him the king of Hollywood. But it must have been especially a vindication for David O. Selznick as someone who'd been trying to get out of the shadow of his father-in-law and in, had, in fact, been feuding with his father-in-law. And, and didn't his relationship with Louis B. Mayer's daughter sort of have a turning point on Oscar night of, of Gone with the Wind? That's how, that is how Irene Mayer would remember it later in her memoirs that she wrote. She would claim that the fact that she felt she felt literally left behind by her husband on Oscar night. They had had this sort of pre-ceremony cocktail party at their house, and he had just gotten in the limbo with Clark Gable without saying goodbye and like without making a plan for meeting up at the awards. And so she was left to like be the wife, like cleaning up the party and saying goodbye to the last guest. And then when she got to the awards, she just like refused to speak with him. And so she remembers that as being this like first turning point where she realized that she and her husband were sort of going down different paths. But they didn't actually split up for several years after that. It was fascinating to listen in, in, in the episode that you said you you can look at old newsreel footage of the ceremony and it actually looks like that Irene arrives not too too long after Selznick, right? And I just think it's fascinating that, yeah. it, that we have, like, red carpet footage, essentially, in a way, <laughs> from all... Well, know. yeah, and actually, today I found on Getty Images photographs of them, like, walking together at the ceremony, like, wow. side by side. She looks very unhappy, though. So, <laughs> so she I may mean, as well you know, have We have been. no idea, like, when that photograph was taken or at, at what point the newsreel captured them, but, yeah. Karina, you do, I mean, you've been telling all these MGM stories, and MGM was obviously a huge player in this era of Hollywood, uh, including with the Oscars. But it seems that over, you know, listening to a lot of your episodes, like the importance of the Oscars kind of doesn't come up that often within the stories that you're telling. Like, I think Gone with the Wind, like part of its legacy is burnished by the fact that it was this huge Oscar winner. But it seems like you are also interested in digging up stories about things that were really important that didn't really get that stamp of recognition. Does the historical importance of Oscars, does it lessen for you the more research you do? Does it seem more important? Like, do you care any more about them than you did when you weren't researching these periods in Hollywood history? Well, I think the important thing to remember is that a lot of the stars that we remember as being sort of the great stars of Hollywood's golden era either never won or in some cases were never nominated or maybe they won for movies that are not considered their greatest movies. Yeah. And so that becomes kind of in- interesting. That actually this sounds idea. familiar to today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, this idea that we talk about it all the time, of people being rewarded for a body of work or like they, you know, they lost in such and such year and so 10 years later they're being rewarded for a movie that nobody considers to be their best work but it's just that they're due so that kind of thing is interesting but i mean again it's like my the histories that i'm telling are not necessarily the linear narratives with the usual accomplishments i'm sort of more interested in finding stories that are a little bit more unusual or lesser known that tell you something maybe a little bit deeper about who this person was and what their life was like People reading tabloids today, I think there's kind of a sense of unseemliness to it. Like, you don't want to poke into people's personal lives. But when you're talking about people who were in Hollywood 100 years ago, it's kind of 
more interesting and it's almost more fun to be able to dig into their personal lives in this way. Do you like, is it, is, do you find that rewarding too? Like, you know, you can talk about someone's drinking problem in a way you can't really talk about someone who's alive because that is such an important part of why things are happening in Hollywood. But when they're happening to people who are around us, we can't talk about them in the way that you're able to on this show. Right. I mean, even, you know, even in the times when a lot of the things that I'm talking about were happening, there was this whole system of publicity and subterfuge. And in the time when things were happening, somebody like you or me, like maybe would not be able to either know about or publish something about what was really going on in a star's life. Well, they did a lot of smoke screening, right? I mean, they, they created a bunch of fake stories to feed the tabloids as, yeah. as publicity that had little to do with what was actually happening. Yeah, and it would go all the way up to somebody writing their memoirs when they're in their 60s or 70s. Like, I just read Lana Turner's autobiography, and she, there's like, you know, she had seven husbands, and one of them, she says, was an alcoholic. So when she was with him, she had a little bit too much vodka at night. And then you read her daughter's autobiography, and she's like, my mom drank too much vodka every night. (laughs) So, like, there's just, there's sort of a self-preservation instinct that, you know, especially I think with some of these golden era stars who never knew the idea of telling the truth to the public. It just carries through. Didn't Lana Turner also accuse her, her child of killing her husband, Johnny Stompanato? This is a, a, an upcoming episode of You Must Remember This. Oh, but, good. Um, okay. <laughs> so he wasn't her husband. He was her gangster boyfriend. Uh, that's and right. Okay. the daughter Thank actually you. did kill him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, anyone who thinks that uh, classic Hollywood was kind of all the pol- like, I think I think there is this sense like people like Eddie Mannix at MGM were really successful at creating these polished images, and uh, the truth of what these guys were all up to is so much more interesting. I liked in the Spencer yeah. the Spencer Tracy episode that you did the anecdote about M- I think it was MGM had a, a fake ambulance and fake ambulance drivers or EMTs basically <laughs> who would be called to a bar to take him away when he yeah. got too drunk. I mean that's I, I would almost I wish something like that crazy existed now, but <laughs> we can set that up for yeah. you, Richard. Okay. You're at Vanity Fair now. All right. Good. <laughs> well Good. no, in fifty years we'll learn yeah. what crazy thing is happening now that no one's telling us yet. I mean that's the thing. It's like the idea of somebody as famous as Spencer Tracy just drinking in a bar. Yeah. It's hard to imagine that happening in Los Angeles or New York now. Karina, in this week's episode, you d- uh, you mentioned that you'd be previewing next your your next episode, which is about David O. Selznick and Jennifer Jones. So I wanted you to kind of give us a sneak sense of uh, where the story goes after this Gone with the Wind Oscar night. Right. So again, the the listener who requested this story really wanted to know about Jennifer Jones. So <laughs> I turned it into a two-parter, but this is what at least one person who listens to the show has been waiting for. <laughs> so in 1941, about a year after Oscar night for Gone with the Wind, David O. Selznick meets this actress named Phyllis Walker, who is married to the actor Robert Walker, and she's 22, and they already have two children. And Selznick sort of seizes on this actress and decides to make her into sort of the perfect female star for his purposes. He renames her Jennifer Jones and casts her in a number of films. And then he starts this affair with her, which ends up destroying both of their marriages And he makes at least two movies that are really transparently about his obsession for her. Wow. Well, Karina, I want to thank you so much for uh, phoning in to talk to us. Uh, The podcast is really great. It's such a great, I think we're, you know, so obsessed with In the Moment Hollywood and all the stuff that we do or do not know about what's happening right now. And uh, I think your show is a great example of why if you wait a long time, the stories get way more interesting and richer and uh, old Hollywood remains super fascinating. So uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
I wanted to ask you guys briefly what movies you think are going to be some kind of surprise in the Oscar race. If we're whether we're you don't have our eyes on it yet or it opened earlier in the year and no one's really talking about it yet, uh, we can be soothsayers for a minute and try to uh, predict what no one else sees coming. I think Richard, you had a good suggestion. Well, yeah, I would say one surprise that might not be a surprise because I think I predicted it would have been Best Picture a couple weeks ago <laughs> is that if you look at box office receipts, Bridge of Spies is holding on, mm-hmm. and that's can tend to be a sort of sign of, of sort of future award success. But uh, a movie I saw last night was The Big Short, this Adam McKay adaptation of Michael Lewis's book, which was based on an article in Vanity Fair, I believe. And it's about the, the sort of financial crisis in 2007, 2008, told from the sort of half-heroic, half-sinister guys who bet against the U.S. economy failing and made a ton of money while everyone was losing a lot of money. It's a kind of fast macho kind of uh, ensemble movie, Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt, Steve Carell, a bunch of other guys. A lot of wigs, right? Mostly guys. A lot of wigs. Anyway, I saw it last night. It's got really strong performances, and I think, you know, the big surprise of it is Adam McKay, you know, Anchorman, a lot of Will Ferrell movies, dealing in a kind of more seriousness and a a bigger scope, uh, handling a lot of information, a lot of financial jargon and all that pretty, pretty adeptly. Anyone can see that there's a real estate bubble. Actually, no one can see a bubble. That's what makes it a bubble. That's dumb, Lawrence. It's always markers. Mortgage fraud quintupled since 2000, and the average take-home pay is flat, but home prices are soaring. That means the homes are debt, not assets. So Mike Burry, a guy who gets his hair cut at Supercuts and doesn't wear shoes, knows more than Alan Greenspan and Hank Paulson. Yeah, Dr. Mike Burry, yes, he does. <laughs> So I think, yeah, I mean, I screened last week in L.A., and, and a lot of the reaction there was pretty effusive, and um, that was definitely matched at the screening I went to uh, last night. There was a Q&A afterward, a lot of applause. So I don't know. I mean, uh, that movie, all of a sudden, it could it, it now makes sense why the studio decided to kind of push it and release it this year because um, yeah. it's like, apparently tracking really well. So yeah. I think that could be a surprise. A movie that I saw recently that... Uh now it, I'm actually allowed to talk about is Creed, which is the Rocky spinoff, I guess. It's kind of a sequel. Sylvester Stallone is in it as Rocky Balboa, but the main character is the is Adonis, who is the son of Apollo Creed, famous uh, Rocky opponent, played by Michael B. Jordan. And this movie is a sports movie, and it's kind of got training montages, and it's got like a bunch of tough guys hanging out at the gym, and it's got a guy kind of talking about how he wants to be the best, but it really, really works. It's directed by Ryan Coogler, who made Fruitvale Station, which kind of a lot of people really thought we'd get Michael B. Jordan an Oscar nomination a couple years ago. It didn't quite work out, but it really kind of launched him as this really uh, big young star. And it's really effective. Sylvester Stallone is really great in it, and I can't remember the last time I thought that about him in a movie. It's got this these really effective fight scenes. I didn't see Southpaw. I was kind of horrified by the violence of it, but I think Creed really gets you in the boxing ring, and even as someone who can't really stand the idea of boxing, I was really engaged by it. And it has this great emotional through line, which is the tradition of all of the Rocky movies. I think this movie is should do really well. It's opening the week of Thanksgiving, which is going to be a tough period, but I, it's it makes you feel so good walking out of it, which really can't be underestimated for a movie that people want to vote for. Yo, Adrian, it's me, Rocky. All right, so I want to pin both of you guys down because I haven't seen anything. The only thing I've heard about is concussion, that that Will Smith is a real possibility uh, for best actor. But what categories are you guys talking about for these two Mm. movies? Well, I think we can get into this in category fraud as well, but I I think there's a lot of... Uh, strong pr- acting performances in Big Short that may or may not go into lead with one or two of them, but probably are mostly supporting. I think there's definitely some uh, an adapted screenplay thing in the mix. I don't think anything beyond that necessarily, 
but but we'll see. You never know. I mean, you know, a picture like Moneyball, which was pr- kind of similar in sort of yeah. style and tone, and, and a little sort wonky, of, and, and also yeah. inspired by a Michael Lewis. Yeah. Book, by well, the way. yeah, I mean, he's, look, yeah, he's blindside. That, that guy's got a good yeah. Oscar track record. Yeah, so maybe it could it could actually go bigger than than I'm thinking, but I think at at the very least, it's a strong contender in some acting categories. Well, and it's a weird thing because because there's as many as ten Best Picture nominations. Yeah, you can be that you can be one of the weaker movies and get a Best Picture nomination and like hardly anything else, right? Yeah. Well, so. and that's why I feel like there's room for Creed. If it becomes a big hit the way that I think it should, it could have that kind of populist spot that I suspect maybe the Academy won't give to Mad Max or something like that. That's maybe, or just straight out of Compton. Or straight it? out of well, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, straight out of Compton is like basically only a comparison because it's got an African American cast. But in a year where so many of the other Oscar contenders are overwhelmingly white, Michael B. Jordan does make a really compelling case for a nomination. Just so you don't have yet another year of the hashtag Oscar so white. I don't know how much individual Academy voters think about that or care about that, but it would be a relief for those of us who love the Oscars to have them not nominate all white people again. I think there's also, we should never underestimate, like, Rocky sentimentality, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, Rocky won Best Picture. So hopefully, you know, hopefully it doesn't bomb and then I look like an idiot and same for the big short. I guess that's the problem of making big, bold predictions about surprises. (laughs) Everything I got has moved on and I'm here. But you know what? It's okay. Because I said to myself, if I break, if I'm hurt, whatever, I ain't going to fix it. Why bother? And I'm just some bum that's living in your crib, just, just nothing. You're a good kid, a good fighter. But you got your whole future ahead of you, mine? Back there, like all them guys on that wall, in the back, in the past. So last week, some corners of Oscar Twitter, or at least my corner of Oscar Twitter, were really angry about the fact that 20th Century Fox has decided to promote The Martian as a comedy at the Golden Globes, which divides its best picture categories into drama or musical or comedy. But then that same week, maybe a day or two later, the Globes actually made a really solid decision uh, by refusing to accept the categorization of either the Danish girls Alicia Vikander or Carol's Rooney Mara as supporting actresses, which the studios had each asked them to do. That all sounds really nitpicky, but it's actually totally the engine that makes award season run. However you position your film and as contenders really determines how it will win wherever you've placed it. Mike, I remember talking about The Martian being placed as a comedy at the Globes way back at Toronto when it first premiered, and I think we both thought it was a good idea. So we knew this was coming even before maybe the Golden Globes did. Do you think this is a big deal, the way that a studio decides that its film is going to be a comedy versus a drama? Well, let's talk a second because I, I guess it was Krista who kind of let it slip that was the she? plan was. So Krista Smith, our West Coast editor, said, oh, the plan for The Martian is to run it as a comedy. They're going to get the nomination at the Globes because there are separate comedy and drama uh, categories. And the, and the, the vo- comedy the category Globes. is often perceived to be thinner because a lot of the really heavy Oscar movies are dramas. Right. And they're going to get Matt Damon a nomination and possible win in Best Actor in a Musical and Comedy. And I thought, boy, that's really smart. There are maybe three laughs in The Martian. I mean, I mean how many oh, laughs are there? Oh, come on. I think I really, I think and The no, Martian was very funny. And the music is not really, well, it's not musical anyway. No, I mean, it's, it, it's, <laughs> it's amusing, it's right? There's go. a lot of like Matt Damon being charming and, and you might laugh out loud three times in the, in the movie. But 
it's a really smart strategy because it creates a lot of visibility and momentum is a big part of this game. So I don't, I, I wouldn't consider a category fraud. I think it's really shrewd and, you know, it'll probably work. I mean, it could work. Yeah. It could get Matt Damon a nomination in an extremely crowded year and it could, it probably will vault them into the top 10. So Richard, why do you think that The Martian as a comedy doesn't really bother us? But I think we've talked about how Alicia Vikander and Rooney Mara being promoted to supporting actresses was really irritating. What's the difference between these? Well, I think that we're talking about something that's subjective and something that's a little bit more objective. I mean, you know, is The Martian a comedy? I, I maybe thought it was funnier than Mike did. Maybe someone else thinks it's even less funny than Mike did. You know, like like the we, that's kind of up for debate. So I think that it's okay. I think I thought it was amusing. Sure. <laughs> I, yes. Maybe I was sort of probably half like grinning the whole time. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, whereas in terms of screen time and even just the scope of a role and and what it you know how how it figures into the sort of narrative of a movie it it's a little clear to me at least when a movie you know when when a performance is a lead performance i know that the movie's called carol but it's at least 50% about Rooney Mara's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, At Therese. least. I mean, she's, the, she's yeah, she, the person it, that you're following. She's our the kind of film. window into the movie. Well, and there are a lot of window imagery in that movie, actually, <gasps> so that was very clever. Well, 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 well done, yeah. <laughs> No, but, she, you know, she's, the, she's, the, she's the, 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 the story there, really. And, you know, I think that with... Actually, it's funny. Alicia Vikander, she is not playing the titular Danish girl, but she, I think, even has more screen time, more lines, more to do in, in The Danish Girl than, than Eddie Redmayne in does. In both yeah. cases, they're totally taking advantage of that technicality, like, yeah. oh, it's called The it's Danish right. Girl, it's called <laughs> right. Carol. Matt right. Damon is the Martian. They can't really. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> well, well exactly. So so is, was, was Matt Damon a lead in Saving Private Ryan? Because that's the name of the movie. You know, like, <laughs> right. You know, so. But yeah, I think that, that, that it just becomes a kind of frustration of this kind of that's when really when we see this kind of backstage kind of machination, this, you know, to, to kind of get, you know, everyone into their, the category where they can win mm-hmm. versus, I think, sort of appreciating the performance for its size and its scope. And I think once in a while, something like Anthony Hopkins, who had like 18 minutes of screen time or something. Yes, he actually was, I think, the lead actor in that movie mm-hmm. next to Jodie Foster, even though his screen time was, was pretty small compared to hers. But but I think that, you know, lately it's been more about like where we can win versus where you deserve to be. And it's more often frustrating in the opposite direction. Like when Philip Seymour Hoffman was promoted as a supporting actor in The Master, mm-hmm. which in the title of the movie, because Joaquin Phoenix was promoted as yeah. lead. Like, And that's just frustrating because of the size and the importance of that performance. Or Christoph Waltz in Django Unchained, where he won a supporting actor Oscar for a movie in which I'd say he's the second lead by far. Right. Well, I, I will say that if it gets Patricia Arquette the Oscar for Boyhood, <laughs> I'm not completely against it. Yeah. Even though she's basically, I mean, there's certainly no woman in that film, no leading lady besides her, but it is named after the boy. And then, but then on the other hand, you have something like Anne Hathaway. You can still win an Oscar for like six minutes of screen time. Yeah. And I, I that for me feels like what supporting actor and actress is for when you have that kind of small but really crucial role, like people in network winning Oscars for being in one scene. I mean, on the other hand, isn't it sort of I don't know. It's such a big deal to have an Oscar. Like, should should there really be a category for walk-on roles that are like seven minutes long? I, I think I if you wonder. become kind of the fulcrum of the film, if you really you know turn in a supporting performance, that's the true definition of supporting, where you are an element that contributes to the main story, and you have that much of an impact. Like Judi Dench in Shakespeare in Love, like she's one of the things you go see that movie for still. Yeah, I mean that's great, and she won. Yeah, but but I think the reason why this doesn't bother me is it seems to more often than not be a way 
way to get recognition for somebody who deserves it and mm-hmm. and is not going to be able to compete in a crowded leading thing. I mean, like, do we really feel bad for, like, character actors who aren't getting their due because J.K. Simmons, you know, arguably was the other lead of Whiplash? I kind of do. I mean, also, he's a character actor for life, yeah. and you know he deserved that damn Oscar. He yeah, was amazing. Yeah, but like when Kate Winslet was going to try to be campaign as a supporting actress in The Reader, even though she's like one of three characters in the whole thing, and, and it plays the reader, I believe. Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> or no, no, she's she's the one being read to. Sorry. <laughs> and yeah. the uh, the yeah. Oscars said no, she yeah. has to be a lead actress. Like if Kate Winslet had finally won her Oscar for kind of a fake supporting actress statue, not that she didn't deserve it, but that that wasn't where she belonged. I feel like that would have felt a little hollow. Like, I'm glad that she went and got the lead actress Oscar that she deserved for that performance and for her career as a leading actress. Okay, I agree. I agree when it's Kate Winslet. <laughs> <laughs> I always think it's funny when, like, huge megastars have their one Oscar for a supporting turn. Like, that was Kate for That's Kate. That's fake for, supporting. Well, not, not, I mean, like, oh. Kate Blanchett winning for supporting in The Aviator. And, like, that was her one Oscar until Blue Jasmine. It was like, how is it? Like, Anne Hathaway having a supporting actress Oscar. Mm-hmm. And when they're huge, huge megastars, it's always a funny thing to me. But it's it, it can also be the way for an actor to sneak in and get their Oscar. You know, even yeah. if it's not a lead, it's not a lead performance, at least they have... You know, at least, you know, at least Tommy Lee Jones has that fugitive Oscar, even though he is the lead and one of the co-lead in that oh, movie. Oh, God, that's true. That's a that's you know? an infuriating one. I mean, he's really yeah. good in it, though. But he is the, definitely the co-lead. Yeah, but, he yeah. Uh, he was the first person to beat Leonardo DiCaprio for an Oscar in a yeah. tragic pattern that well, continues you, yeah. to this day. Yeah. I'm just glad Jared Leto has an Oscar. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I wonder how it's, you know, how it's dressed. <laughs> what it wears. That's a long week on. Yeah. <laughs> so, Richard, do you think it's stupid to care about this, or is um, this what makes it all go? I think it, no, I don't think it's stupid. I think it's I think it's an interesting point of contention that you can certainly debate. I get sort of maybe irrationally annoyed by it. I don't know. Maybe it's just some sense of like like my like I have a theater background, and that would you know, and the Tonys would never do that. You know, <laughs> like they, have, they have very sort of because they'll nominate you know multiple leads per show mm-hmm. in the same category. They they are a lot less skittish about doing that than the Oscars are because it's not as much of a horse race. You know, it's it's so I think there's some purist part of me that's like a, a lead role should be treated as such and you know supporting role should be treated as such and we should yeah. really make that clear delineation i think you know by this time next year we'll have forgotten a lot of yeah. this kind well, of you know, i might freak out the purist in you by saying maybe there should just be more categories i wouldn't i wouldn't mind if there was a third tier yeah because yeah. i mean the other thing is that we just heard karina say that this whole thing was invented as a publicity scam <laughs> slash way to keep people from being miserable, uh, actors being miserable. Mm-hmm. Like it's not exactly the Ten Commandments, you know. Like they could they could throw a <laughs> well, few more categories. They extended it to ten in. best picture yeah. nominees just because they felt like right. it. Right. Yeah. Well, this is something that's really worth watching if you, you know, you don't pay a ton of attention to the Oscars the way do, we do or get mad about it. But if you're watching in February and you're like, wait a second, why? I saw that movie. She was the lead. Why is she there? This is why this happens, because they think they have the best shot of winning. And we'll see if at the Oscars, Alicia Vikander and Rooney Mara are supporting actresses. Like, I wonder if this will kind of end that fraud. Will Tom Hardy be a supporting actor for Mad Max? <laughs> Even is that how they're campaigning him? No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> or for Legend, one oh, one right. performance is uh, lead and one performance is supporting. Yeah. Well. Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or dog house in that area. Checkpoints go up in 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kim. 
And finally, it's time to go big and then go home. Everybody, please make your boldest prediction of who you think will win Best Supporting Actor. Well, I am going to hold to something that I thought was true way back in September, which is I think someone from Spotlight will get it. I think that we've talked about Keaton before here. I think we maybe even talked about Ruffalo a little bit. Mm -hmm. I feel like the wind is blowing a little in Keaton's direction right now. But I think that might change. I'm going to stick with Ruffalo, who I thought would would win back in September. Oh, good. Because I have Keaton. (laughs) Okay. And I feel like his performance is really, really soulful. Ruffalo's is great, but a little bit mannered. And Keaton's is like 100% human. And I do think that there might be some win behind him after last year where it was kind of a toss-up whether or not he should have won Best Actor. So uh, that's mom sticking. Well, with that. he does get the the final shot of the movie where it's kind of focusing on his face as he's listening to those phones ringing in the office, and like that that I think was the one really emotional beat of the movie for me, and it's all on him. I mean, there's yeah. arguably a category fraud thing to say here in a film that's such an ensemble that there's not really a lead. He's probably the closest thing to a lead. I, maybe I, I think all of them going and supporting is the exact right way to handle it. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say something insane because I haven't seen Joy and I have no idea if the movie's good or not, or even if Bradley Cooper's part is that big or not. But I think Bradley Cooper is doing really well for himself. American Sniper was this insane out of nowhere hit. And so if he is a supporting actor in Joy and has a media enough part, he has done great work for David O. Russell in the past. It feels like that could really work out for him. The supporting actor race doesn't feel cemented enough with anyone. I mean, the spotlight guys are pretty competitive, but I really feel like someone could sneak in on this. And Bradley Cooper has a lot of win behind him, like you were saying for Michael Keaton. Yeah. And I would be remiss to mention, just speaking of the big short, there is also, I think, a distinct possibility that Steve Carell could 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 win a supporting Oscar for that movie. He's the moral center of the movie. Again, he's maybe arguably a lead, but there's something there that's a little bit more dynamic than his performance in Foxcatcher was. So I think that they might want to try again with him in the same way that they might want to try again with Keaton this year. You know, like you didn't win the lead thing, but maybe maybe we can get you one in supporting. Finally, so. vindication for Foxcatcher. Yeah, the just poor supporting category. It's just like the leftover. Like, okay, <laughs> you tried lead, you didn't get it. It's the consolation. Yeah, prize. consolation yeah. prize. Yeah. yeah. I'd still like one. You know, <laughs> it's at least better than the year when all the supporting actor nominees had won before, and it was like, oh, who cares? Yeah. No one wants to give any of these people Oscars. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find all of us writing about awards season and much more at VanityFair.com and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich. Mike is at... Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard? Rylaws, R-I-L-A-W-S. And you can find the entire podcast at Little Gold Men, where we would love to hear from you. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and Tim Eininkel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply and to Henry Malofsky. You can find this and many more great podcasts at panoply.fm. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.